Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. Welcome to this third segment on our series on women on leadership. I have with me today Dr. Benita Thompson, the foremost expert on collaborative leadership. And Benita, when you think about the hundreds of women leaders that we've interviewed, most of these were at the World Economic Forum. What would you say this educator, this advertising executive, and this representative for legislative rights, what would they all have in common in your estimation? They were excellent leaders as far as helping people understand how important their role was in the larger collaborative effort. And they really supported the group and helped individuals to contribute better. Please enjoy this third segment on women in leadership. Dr. Marva Collins is a world-class educator with her own special mission. She's been asked to become Secretary of Education by two presidents of the United States. Dr. Collins grew up in Alabama at a time when African-Americans weren't even permitted to use the library. She became a teacher, but her controversial approach to educating kids was rejected by the public school system. With just $5,000 of her own pension money, she started her own school in 1975, the West Side Preparatory School in Garfield Park in Chicago's inner city. The first year, she took in just a few kids, all of them labeled learning disabled or problem children. Yet at the end of that first year, every child's aptitude scores leapt at least five grades. That was only the beginning. Her success with students previously labeled as unteachable led to profiles in Time Magazine and Newsweek. Dr. Collins states that her most important accomplishment was never losing a child, meaning that all of her students became contributors to their communities. Mark was honored to speak with Marva about her remarkable work. The first thing I think I get teachers to understand is that the excellence they pursue is really about them, not about the children. I don't do what I do for children. The first question I ask teachers that I train, what's wrong with the children? I get a litany of answers. My next question is, what's wrong with the parents? The answers are infinite. My third question is, what's wrong with you as a teacher? And of course, I get complete silence. You see, we have to begin with what's wrong with us that we can't help this child. If you begin with these children, those parents, the principal, they don't know this, they don't know that. If we begin with all those negatives, we will never get to where children can go. The first school that I taught for 14 years and the average resident was our unwelfare. The average income then was 4000 a year. The average family was single-family homes on welfare. But again, I don't think locale, I don't think stu- I taught those students the same way I would if they were presidents of the United States children. I always pretend that I'm on international satellite and the whole world is watching what I do. And that if this was my very last day on earth, how would I want to conduct that day? One of my favorite selections is Plato's Republic, which is where the first noble lie began. He actually told every child that they were wonderful, that they were leaders, that they were magnificent. And once the children discovered that that was not true, they had practiced being excellent for so long that again, 
you know, it became a way of life for them. Children don't learn to, they will look at a paper and I will say, we will say to them, we'll take that paper, but it's very average. It's a $5 paper, but you have a choice to do a $5 million paper, a $50,000 paper. The child will look at the paper and say, I choose to do it over. I don't believe in driving children. I don't believe in, in punishment. I believe in discipline. Well, now you do have some very unusual reading materials, and this is also just the kind of person that you are. You have your students actually read The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People is really a fourth and fifth grade reader for our children. Uh, right now, our sixth graders will use our Zukov's book, Seed of the Soul. I think what we are missing, we teach children that someone lived happily ever after, but we don't teach them to get through bad times. That's why these kids are killing and blowing up schools. We, we must teach children that there are bad times and how to get through the bad times, and that life is not a happy ever after endeavor. There's a line in Moby Dick that says, in the slippery world, we all need something to hold on to. And we aren't giving our children, you can't hold on to computers and computer games and designer clothing and how lovely you are, how handsome you are. You have to hold on to that one person that wherever you go, there you are. And that's the self that we each are. You as an educator have become a national figure in recent years. And you were offered the highest education position in the country by not one, but two presidents, Presidents Reagan and Bush. How was that for you? To become Secretary of Education means that I have to have my ideas filtered before a focus group. And if I know something is right to do, I am willing to stand alone and I will not change those views. I have lost many things in my travels. I leave things on planes, my purse, my coat, whatever, but I've never lost a child in 30 years. I will do nothing. If I have to die for it, I will do nothing that will harm a child, ever. And I just knew that Secretary of Education job is not for me because I must be let, left alone to do what I know works. I think it's an honor to be able to work with the children that I have worked with. I think it's also an honor when children say to me, I like me when I'm with you. Not that to belittle the honor of being asked by two presidents, but I am honored each time I go into a classroom, which is why I always say to students when I leave the room, thank you for allowing me to be your teacher today. You honor me by allowing me to be your teacher. Tell me about when you first decided that you could break with the Chicago Public School and create your own school. I always had great expectations. I was ridiculed by the other teachers. Even the principal said to me that your problem is you cannot forget that these are not your children. They come from fetid homes and decadent homes, or you cannot have the same expectations for them. I think nothing comes instantaneous. You know, we'll say, well, all of a sudden I knew I had to leave. I think one becomes a bit battle fatigued and you don't know what you're going to do, but you know that you cannot continue the pattern that you're in. So 
Just after 14 years of battling, of seeing such lowered expectations for children, I was a bit battle fatigued. And when you're swimming upstream in a nation where the average conversation is what's wrong with the children, and I am telling them what's right with children, that's not a conversation that wants to be heard. I still have a great challenge today When I go into schools to put in my methodology or to work with the school, many of the teachers will not speak to me or have a very negative attitude. But the attitude isn't about me. It's that they do not believe in their excellence as much as I see that they're excellent. So I have learned to look at that in a different perspective because I think if you somehow concentrate on the wrongs that have been done us and you will never evolve and if you do not evolve you're not growing what kind of advice would you give for leadership the hardest thing in a world for me where everybody's like everybody else is to be me that is so difficult because you have two kinds of people the creators and the second-handers The creator is self-motivated, self-generated, and self-propelled. The second-hander is always trying to garner opinions of others and belong to the crowd, to belong to the herd. And I think the greatest advice I give young people is when they call and ask me, and I get many of those, what should I do? And my next question to them is, what are you willing to do? It's like the Wizard of Oz. We're looking for a wizard. You know, they go to the wizard seeking a heart, a brain, courage, and the wizard says, you have these things. All you need to do is to use it. When you get that great indomitable self in your own belief, then all things are possible. You're going to make mistakes. Don't beat yourself up for it. There's no such thing as failure. Failure is a place I rest while I run the big race of success. What I do is remove labels and show every child that they are a champion. When Shelley Lazarus met David Ogilvy, the charismatic, legendary copywriter and founder of Ogilvy and Mather, I mean the original madman, She had no idea that she would spend her life in advertising, nor did she imagine becoming the head of an advertising agency three decades later. Despite David Ogilvy's long shadow of his company, she reinvented what it meant to run an advertising agency, and since then has continued to transform the way we think about connections with clients, customers, and communities, and the way we market our services and ourselves how we think of ourselves as a brand. Listen to Shelley. People would ask me, what are we going to do when he dies? Uh, Which was a very bizarre question to me. And I gave an even more bizarre answer, which was it actually doesn't matter at this point. You know, it mattered to me enormously because, you know, I grew up with him and I was very close to him and knew him very well. And because he was such a brilliant writer, He wrote down all the principles he believed in and wrote them in a way that so captured the imagination of people that you never forgot them. 
You know, when when he said things like, uh, you can't save souls in an empty church. I mean, other people could go out and say, um, unless advertising stops you, you're not going to, you know, pay attention. Or, But because he said that, um, or one of my other favorite things he said was, we abhor toadies. Now, there are companies I've read who in their, their uh, sort of principles and beliefs will say, uh, there are no politics here. I mean, you, you accept that, but when someone looks at you and says in you know, a very English accent, we abhor toadies, you, you feel what the organization is like. It's, it's not just you think, it's, it's you feel it as well. So, so he wrote everything down, he inculcated it in the people who were there. So the disciples were still there, you know, 30 years later. They were talking to their people about the same principles. Uh, we have books, we have film, we have tapes, we have posters uh, in every office around the world. And so it just sort of, it, it just, it, it's constantly around all our people. And, uh, and that's how a culture is built. How do you bring them to the organization? And, and more precisely, as you said, it's an individual issue. It's not a generic issue that uh, you see in the annual report at every company. People are great. How do you actually define that on an individual basis and, and able to move an organization forward in a focused way? Well, it's, it's a wonderful thing to lead a company that you've grown up in because you can feel the culture and you know it yourself because you've experienced it for so many years. Um, I think it's a, it's a culture that's based on uh, a recognition that all we have are the people who work for the company. But unless you pay attention to each individual as an individual and think about what it will take to make that individual prosper, be happy, um, be smart, be successful. Unless you have an organization that can respond to each individual. And so I have to make sure that I can get those people into my company in the first place and keep them and keep them happy. Um, advertising has, has had a reputation for years as being an industry where people come into an agency, they leave two years later, there's no uh, emotional commitment to, to any, anybody or anything but yourself. I joined o Ogilvy in 1971 with the expectation that I would stay for two years. I'd sort of get some agency experience and then I would move on to some sort of general management. And I just never left. Uh, I found an environment that I so loved working in and people that, you know, I, I adored. So now I spend all my time thinking about um, how can I attract and retain the best people in the world. One of the things that I preach about as, uh, as I go around the world is that uh, many companies underestimate and underattend to their internal audience. Now, this is going to sound trite, but, but it's, it's proven to be true. I mean, people have to believe that they're honored, that they're respected, that they're needed, and that they're loved. I mean, I find when somebody is about to leave any company, and my company in particular, it's because they feel they no longer have impact, and it's because they feel they don't make a difference, and it's because they feel that nobody actually cares if they stay or they leave. 
And so you have to recognize people and you have to say thank you. I don't think we say thank you enough. It's just simple human things. And I find, you know, writing people notes just when, when you they've done something that you find extraordinary. I, I, I found out just the other day, I was in someone's office, and they pulled out an, a handwritten note that I had sent them 18 years ago. And... I, it was just it just struck me all over again about how these little things that you just do spontaneously make such an enormous difference to people. And actually, as this person pulled out the note, I thought, I still have some notes that some people send to me, probably for, you know longer ago. Uh, so uh, so I think it's it's all the human things. Could you talk about a time in your life when you did have a challenge that felt a bit more insurmountable and, and how you attacked it? I was actually called back at a, at a certain point in my career to take over uh, Ogilvy's office in New York, and it was a very, very difficult time. That The office had gotten into a great deal of trouble, and I went through about a two-month period where I used to have this nightmare, literally, of on a single day, all the people and all the clients would leave. Uh, simultaneously, and I would be—I would find myself in an empty room, completely alone. Um, and uh, uh, I think when the—I mean, one of the things I learned from that experience is that first of all, you have to—you have to make the problem smaller. I mean, sometimes there seems to be an overwhelming problem that you're facing, and sort of if you can break it into some component parts, you know, so that you so that you can set yourself some smaller goals, uh, and and uh, sort of say to yourself, okay, here's here's what I need to accomplish this week, and and some smaller things. That one of the things I've discovered with people is after they've been through some time of difficulty, is you've got to find ways to make them feel success. You know, they've got, they've got, there's got to be hope at the end of the day. So if you can set some goals that are not so hard and they can start to be successful at some smaller things, then all of a sudden the whole outlook changes and they start to, to get their confidence back. And the other thing is always keeping perspective. I mean, one of the... I'm always asked to talk about balance in life. You know, one of the wonderful things about having a long-term marriage and children and, um, is that, you know, if you fail at this business challenge, it's not really that important because you still have your family, you still have your kids. Uh, early on in, in my career, I was, uh, uh, I was in a, a meeting with a woman who was horribly distressed, you know, because she couldn't achieve something by a certain time. And my boss at the time grabbed her by the shoulders and, and he just stopped her. And he said, what do you think they're going to do to you? Take away your children? And I've never forgotten that. I've, you know, if sort of, if no one's going to die as a result of this, I mean, you just, you just have to keep it in perspective and, and, and then you can function because if, it, if the consequences are too significant, then I don't think you function as effectively as when you go in there and go, 
I have some ideas about how to solve this. I know the people I can solve it with. I think we can do it. I have a plan. We'll just take it a day at a time. And, and I don't think you can say enough uh, good things about resilience. I think resilience is something that is underestimated in business as a, you know, a characteristic all the time. To just be able to come back the next morning to fight the fight again. Uh, and, and after a while, it should start to turn around. Gloria Fox's life and career have not been easy. She came from humble means and struggled to raise a family. Her fight and determination helped her become a state representative. Now she heads the Black Legislative Caucus in Massachusetts. Gloria Fox is absolutely clear about her advice for anyone who makes the choice to take responsibility as a leader. Politics is very personal. The eye in politics is, is personal too. It's all of us and it's all of us individually. Collectively, we can come together and do something. But the eye is, is, is personal. Can't be selfish, but it is personal. What is in it for me is how most people feel about politics. What have you done for me lately? Me lately is what most people feel about politics. And then you gotta take it another step forward. What have you done? Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.